Hello everybody, my name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to Things Observed. And if you hear any rain in the background today, it's not because it's raining in my home in America, but it's because I flew all the way out to the Philippines in search of some of that golden lily loot, some of Yamashita's gold. So that's what I've been up to. I had to put down my machete and quit going through all the the bushes and all of the uh, jungle here and had to quit looking for that gold in order to record the second installment but so that's what I've been up to this weekend um, you know trying to get ourselves a decent budget for things observed so that way I can get like a Joe Rogan type studio and you know we can film all the podcast in the future and have on big name guests and I can finally sell out but so where did we leave off last time well we left off with uh, the torturing of Yamashita's driver Kojima by none other than Santi who we will talk about in great detail this episode so we have you know kind of the Americans just starting to get into these this golden lily loot and we have people like edward lansdale who begin to make their way into the story and we'll talk a little bit about edward lansdale in this episode and we'll talk about him a lot next episode but today we are going to start with ferdinand marcos he would be i believe it was the 10th president of the philippines um but president might be too nice of a term, might make things sound a little bit more democratic than they actually were in reality. But hey, I guess it's not the vote that matters, but who counts the votes? Um, so anyways, Ferdinand Marcos is where we're going to start today. And during the 1950s, after some of the dust had settled from World War II, some Japanese men began to return to the Philippines in search of the golden lily loot, just like I'm doing right now. Um, well, I guess right now I'm podcasting, but just like I was doing right up into the moment that I hit the record button on my laptop. Um, and some of these men claimed to be looking for the bones of Japanese soldiers, so that way they could do Shinto burial, and uh, others who were businessmen began to place factories in odd locations where conspicuously heavy crates would be carried. Um, that maybe had more than the TVs and tape recorders and computers and other items that they were claiming to make at their companies. And a CIA source would actually tell the Seagraves, the authors of Gold Warriors, who we've been using as our primary source, both in today's episode and last episode, um, the CIA source would tell the Seagraves that the agency knew gold was being carried out through the Philippines by this method. And Tokyo began to help facilitate the reconstruction of the war-torn Philippines. But just kind of like some of these uh, Japanese businessmen were placing their factories in kind of conspicuous location, the reconstruction of the war-torn Philippines, um, a lot of the roads and irrigation systems that were being built were often built throughout the mountains where much of the golden lily treasure had been hidden. And, you know, it could very easily be argued that these roads and irrigation systems could have been, you know, served better in, you know, inside the city of Manila or some of these other places where you're going to have, that are going to be a bit more urban and you're going to have more people there. So we have all these different uh, Japanese men and, you know, the government trying to kind of get some of this golden lily loot. And they all have various covers in order to do it. And Santi, who we introduced last episode, the one who carried out the torture of Yamashita's driver Kojima, um, he will, we will cover in greater detail, but he was the gatekeeper of the Golden Lily Funds directly after the war. And we will get into great detail about how he was a gatekeeper of these funds during the war. But we'll start right now with another man, one who was ruthlessly ambitious to say the least. And he would make his way into all of the Golden Lily loot that is the topic of this podcast series and this man was Ferdinand Marcos he was a lawyer a politician and eventually the dictator and kleptocrat who would rule the Philippines and serve as the 10th president of the country 
So the first time that Marcos came into contact with the Golden Lily Gold would be by happenstance when two Japanese men, former Imperial Army men at that, were digging in his home province. And the men had stashed away some gold biscuits for themselves, which Marco, Marcos would have confiscated. Just accidentally said the name of my girlfriend. Guess I've got other things on my mind. But anyways, um, they would be stashing away these gold biscuits for themselves, which Marcos would have confiscated. And this would be the beginning of Marcos's gold lust. And Marcos would hear of Santi's operation, and he would begin to, in the words of the Seagraves, cultivate him aggressively. So over time, he would begin to take over certain aspects of Santi's operation. Marcos would also, after being elected president in 1965, be approached by Sasakawa Ryochi, who was a fixer in the Japanese underworld. And Ryochi was a crony of Yoshio Kadama, who was a very interesting figure all in himself, um, in his own right. Um, Kodama was a Japanese ultra-nationalist, something that was definitely in vogue during this period of time, who had become enormously wealthy throughout um, through his involvement in smuggling operations and various smuggling operations, which kind of goes back between that nexus between intelligence agencies and the criminal old underworld, and Kadama was a fixture in this nexus. And Kadama would be arrested as a war criminal, but... What would you know, the American military, um, specifically American military intelligence under Charles A. Willoughby, would have all charges against him drop. But, as things like this happen, it was on a condition, and that condition was that he helped fight communism in Asia. So, using his CIA connections, he would funnel money to various right-wing politicians in Japan, and would also do other lovely things like disrupt labor unions. Um, so Kadama was all in all just a real character and piece of shit. So anyhow, Sasakawa, who was the crony of Kadama, would help Marcos locate a lot of this golden lily loot that he knew the location of. So Marcos would be enriching himself while impoverishing the Filipino people. And let's just say that Marcos was uh, not discreet in his wealth. And in the Philippines, the president makes, uh, you know, compared to somebody in the Golden Lily type operation, um, makes a very modest income. And Marcos was, uh, you know, not cautious to not be flashy. So Marcos, well... Perhaps the most well-known example of Marcos using criminal behavior to acquire Golden Lily loot is after a Filipino locksmith and treasure hunter named Rogelio, Rogelio Roger Roxas discovered a 28-inch solid gold Buddha in a tunnel dug by the Japanese army. And due to me being a, um, you know good old American boy who doesn't know how to pronounce things well, we're going to refer to him by his nickname, Roger. So much of this story can be found in the court case of, and this is the name of the court case, the Supreme Court of the State of Hawaii, Roger Roxas, and the Golden Buddha Corporation vs. Marcos. And as the Seagrave state, the court's finding of fact were assembled from thousands of pages of testimony, transcripts, original documents, photographs, and videotaped depositions. Neither the Marcos defense attorneys nor the Roxas legal team disputed the summary. And so Roger had made a humble living as a locksmith, but in his spare time, he was the head of the Treasure Hunters Association of the Philippines. And I gotta say... What a great hobby that sounds like. If I had lived in the Philippines at this time, I could maybe see myself getting into this. It just sounds fun to go hunting for treasure. It's like uh, going to the beach with a metal detector times 10, you know, instead of, you know, maybe finding, a, you know, at the luckiest, maybe like a Rolex that fell off of somebody at some point. 
I mean, you could find your way, stumble your way ass backwards into a, a black budget. Um, so as president, he would be approached by visiting Japanese men from time to time um, as president of the Treasure Hunters Association of the Philippines. That is um, Roger would be approached by Japanese men from time to time, you know, who were looking for this golden lily. Uh, gold. So one Japanese man, Akubo Yusibio, said that he had been a translator of Yamashita's and that he saw a large quantity of gold and silver taken from Manila to Baguay in wooden boxes stored in a tunnel near the Baguay General Hospital. So another man, Albert Fuchigami, would also confirm that this location existed after saying that his father had left him maps which he could not figure out and uh, in a stupid fit of rage when he could not figure out these maps, he would burn them in anger, which Albert's sister rightfully scorned him over because these maps, as known to people who uh, were looking for this golden lily loot, were meant to be read in a mirror. But Albert didn't know this, and poor Albert just decided to burn the maps instead. So, after the third mention of this locale by the American John Ballinger, who Roxas was friends with, Ballinger had um, fought in Luzon with a guerrilla unit, and he had seen the man referenced in the last episode. Um, Ballinger was the man referenced in the last episode who photographed the fake hospital ship, the Huzimaru, for those of you who remember. But Ballinger would also observe boxes being brought into a tunnel by this hospital so now roger has three different accounts of this treasure being in roughly the same area so with all of this information roger was able to locate the treasure but as often happens with those who find golden lily loot and are not well connected things weren't all hunky-dory afterwards in fact they were far from it so Given that the treasure was located on public land, that means that Roger had to file for a permit to dig for the treasure, and this permit would give 30% of any treasure to the Filipino government, and the permit was approved by the judge in Baguay, who was the uncle of Ferdinand Marcos. So we have Ferdinand Marcos's uncle who would sign this permit and bring this to, you know, everybody's attention in the whole Marcos circle. So Roger would not only find uh, the golden Buddha that was rumored to be at this location, but he would also acquire 24 golden biscuits at the time, which were worth more than $25,000. But that was not all by any means. Roger would see in the tunnel a six feet wide and 30 foot long chamber that was filled with hundreds of wooden boxes the size of beer cans but he did not bother opening these because he knew exactly what they contained and he already had enough treasure to deal with plus he would need more financing in order to properly do the rest of his excavation if i remember properly um, when he opened up this tunnel they had to wait for a week before they could even go inside because just the stench of death from the dead bodies and the gases that have had filled the tunnel was so noxious that they had to wait before they could even go and acquire that. And he would need multiple men to help him move this golden Buddha because um, it was very heavy. And so he would end up just blowing the mouth of the tunnel shut so that way, you know, nobody would come in and find his treasure but that he would be able to come back to the location and get the rest of it after he got enough money to properly finance his excavation so roger would sell seven of those gold biscuits that we just mentioned and he would begin looking for a buyer for the golden buddha and one of those supposed buyers i think the third guy who came around who came to inspect the buddha was joe oyahara and Oyahara would fidget with the head of the Buddha for a while, and after he left, Roger would, along with his brother, take a hammer to the head, but with great caution, you know, because gold is malleable. Um, but he would hammer at the head real gently until eventually the head began to turn, and they learned that the head could be removed, and inside that was a cookie jar-sized cavity that was filled with diamonds. So... Roger had found 
more than he even thought that he had found. But four days after Oihara's visit, eight uniformed men with machine guns would show up to his home, claiming to be from the Criminal Investigation Service of the National Bureau of Investigation, with a search warrant signed by the judge, who was the uncle of Ferdinand Marcos. So I basically think this is like the Filipino National Police showing up at the behest of presumably Ferdinand Marcos's uncle, but as we will see, you know, Ferdinand Marcos is definitely um, has a hand to play in what's going to happen with Roger. And the warrant said that the treasure was to be delivered to the custody of the clerk of the court. And Roger and his family and his two friends who were all at his home were forced to the ground while men with guns searched his house and his brother would be brutally beaten because he would kind of protest what was going on but given the fact that they were all out armed and that these men you know had the whole power of the filipino government behind him uh, didn't work out too well for him lucky he wasn't killed but he was just had his ass handed to him so all the treasure was taken by the men but none of it would end up finding its way to the court which is you know kind of odd and they would charge him with illegal possession of a firearm as well they would charge roger with that that is because uh one of the men who was with him uh, roger's friends who were there were kind of serving as bodyguards because of all you know all the treasure that was in the house and word was starting to get around town about it and one of these weapons was not registered um, I believe it was a 22 rifle so Roger would take the heat for that and Roger would end up reporting this theft to the police and to the press and he also would pay a visit to Ferdinand's uncle to ask, you know, why the hell did you sign the warrant? And he replied that he did so at the behest of his brother. But what would Marcos's uncle say? He would say that he should not have gone to the media because going to the press would likely mean that he would be killed over all of this. But if there was one thing that Roger was, it was... Uh, not trepidatious really he was um you could either argue brave or stupid and so none of this would stop roger and he would go on to file a formal complaint with the police and word of all this would begin to make its way to opposition parties to marcos in the philippines and so he's kind of becoming the local buzz around town so the provincial governor the provincial governor would order the buddha to be taken to the court and what would arrive was to the court was instead of being the genuine gold buddha was a bronze cast of the buddha whose head was not detachable and you could not see the strikes on its head from where the hammers were when some of those um, buyers came to investigate the golden buddha they would also drill a couple tiny holes around the neck to i guess see if it would detach or maybe they're trying to test the authenticity of the gold but it did not have any of these holes there was you know no hammer strike marks and it would just you know wasn't as heavy and it was clearly a bronze cast but roger would go on to say that this was not the real buddha and two weeks later he would be arrested by three plains clothes agents of marcos and taken to a home of a constabulary which is um so a national police officer and would be shown pictures of his wife and his kids and told that if he wanted to see them again he would need to make a list of the senators who were supporting him and to tell the men where the rest of the treasure was so they want to know basically what opposition parties are you talking to who are you getting you know on good terms with who are not in marcus's camp and where's the rest of the treasure but roger would refuse in typical roger fashion and would be given electric shocks across his body and burned with cigarettes and then he was taken to a hotel in angeles city where he was beaten in the face with a rubber mallet and permanently blinded in one eye and the torture would continue until eventually he'd be taken to the court in Bagwai and be photographed with the Buddha. Then he was taken back to a hotel once again 
and he would eventually be able to pick the lock and escape and he would run over to his sister's home and that's when he would phone a senator about his predicament um and the senator's obviously opposition to marcos and would phone the senator tell him about his predicament and the senator would actually ask him to speak before the senate which roger would do and he would inform the senate of all that had happened so after Roger returned home, he'd be summoned to Malakanang Palace, um, Palace, where he would be told by a finance officer that Marcus would pay him five million pesos, and he would consent to, um, and he would consent because he no longer wanted to deal with all the trouble that had been plaguing him since finding the treasure. However, you can guess it, Roger's troubles still were not over. So he would again be arrested after failing to appear in court for the illegal gun charge, and he failed to appear, you know, because he's living in fear since everything that had taken place, and he can't really trust the government that's being headed by Marcos at this time. But he would be bailed out by an attorney, uh, by an attorney sent by Senator Sergio Osmina Jr., who was sent by the leader of the liberal political party. So Sergio Osmina, who opposed Ferdinand Marcos, was sending this lawyer, and Osmina would ask Roger to speak at a political rally now that they have, you know, got him out of prison. So he would go to this rally in Manila where senatorial opponents of Marcos and their supporters gathered in droves, and Roger was told to wait in a truck until it was his turn to speak. And moments later, two grenades would be thrown into the crowd, killing 10 and wounding 66 people, including Osmina and other senatorial candidates. We were told by a member of the Marcos family that the grenades were thrown by men from the Presidential Security Command on orders of Marcos and that Security Chief General Fabian Ver threw one of them. So in typical false flag fashion, the attack would be blamed on who else besides those evil communists and members of the opposition would be arrested and labeled as leftist radicals, which would be the beginning of a slippery slope that would conclude in martial law only a few months later. So Roger would be arrested yet again, and this time he would be convicted on the illegal weapons charge and sent to a prison camp in Bagwai, where he would be beaten and questioned until two years later when he could return home. So since Marco's men could get the desired information out of Roger, they would get it from one of the members of Roger's digging team, and Olympio Magbana, by removing his teeth one by one with pliers so there's me butchering yet another filipino name so sorry for all my listeners out there but marcos's men would find the rest of the treasure in the tunnel by the hospital boxes filled with 75 kilo bars so that you know 
six feet wide by 30 feet long or however it was tunneled they would find all that gold and one hospital worker said that she estimated that 10 boxes were taken out of that tunnel a day for a period of over a year which would mean given if that is true that would be at least 3600 boxes and given the amount of bars that could be stored in each of these boxes that would be 10,875 kilo bars so quiet the hall and Roger knew that there was no way he could fight this battle anymore, so he would go into hiding for over a decade and wouldn't rear his head again until 1986 when Ferdinand and Imelda Marcus were removed from power by the U.S. and taken in exile to Hawaii. So it is here in the story that we will return to Santi, who at the time of Roger's persecution was being pressured by Marcos to turn over some of his large gold accounts. So there's a little bit about Ferdinand Marcos, and uh, it's good to get an idea of who he was because he will, you know, play a role in the story as we go along. But now we're going to return to Santi, the guy who carried out the torturing of Yamashita's driver, Kojima, and who would end up becoming kind of the holder of a, lot of, of a lot of these accounts of gold and would, you know, kind of work at the behest of the CIA and some people in the Treasury Department. So anyways, let's get into Santi. So once again, I'm going to be reading from Gold Warriors, where the Seagrays say, Today, the Philippine government denies that Santa Romana ever existed. He's just a legend. Tell that to his family. We have interviewed his brother, his mistresses, and his children. We have visited his tombstone. We have amassed hundreds of documents, tapes, videos, eyewitness accounts, marriage licenses, confirmation from senior CIA officials, Marcos's family members, Santi's business associates, bank records, and lawsuits. Indisputable evidence from more than 60 years that Santa Romana is real and that his vast fortune of cash and gold bullion sleeps in banks all over the world. The gold recovered by Santi became the asset base for many for many secret funds like the M Fund. He was the gatekeeper of America's golden lily recoveries until Ferdinand Marcos moved in, elbowed him aside, and took over as the new gatekeeper. So Santi was the original gatekeeper of these funds, and we already went into a little bit just how Ferdinand Marcos began to weasel his way into it. But we will also get more into that as we cover the story of Santi. So Santi had many identities that he would go by, um, whether that be Severino Garcia Diaz Santa Romana, um, which was his family name. But he would also go on, you know, numerous different bank documents that we have. You know, we can figure out some of his other identities that he would use which are numerous and not limited to these, but some of them are Ramon Porret, Jose Antonio Diaz, Jose Antonio Severino Garcia Diaz, J. Antonio Diaz, Severino Pina Garcia de la Paz, Matias Canilla, and Jose Almonte. And so Santi would be the sole stockholder and controller of a multitude of front companies for the CIA and the Treasury Department, the foremost of which was DMP Enterprises. And as a title holder of massive bullion accounts across the world, he had more front companies because, you know, when you're dealing with this kind of money, it doesn't hurt to have numerous shell companies to use. So some of the other ones were the Colette Enterprises, Nanette Enterprises, Perroit Enterprises, Diaz Campton Enterprises, and Diaz Perut Enterprises. And so these various front companies would be used to discreetly hide the movements of massive amounts of gold to banks throughout the world. And Santi would also create the Sandy Alstott Foundation, which would be interestingly referenced in letters from Wall Street firms, one of these being Sullivan and Cromwell, you know, the law firm of John Foster Dulles, uh, very notorious in these uh, circles that we all travel in. So I'm sure that you guys have heard about Sullivan and Cromwell, and we don't really have the time to do a whole history of Sullivan and Cromwell, because then we would be doing another multiple part series as, you know, a rabbit hole from what we're already talking about. So the umbrella was the code name of the group that moved all of this gold from the Philippines to foreign banks and Santi served as the umbrella's gatekeeper and cutout man. 
So the umbrella was made up of CIA men, national security types that were part of what Peter Del Scott would describe as the deep state, but you know, you can call them the shadow government. Take your pick of the preferred name for the nexus of intelligence agencies, government, people, and the criminal underworld. This is what the umbrella was. And the CIA has always used people like Sandy because they need plausible deniability. So that is exactly what Santee would provide for them. So when a new account was created, one of Santee's many identities would be entered as the account holder. And the Seagrave said that he had so many identities that he was known as the man with no name, which sounds like an old Western film or something like that. It could be a badass book title or something. So if any of you guys are writers and uh, that fits your project, hey, Take that up. The Man With No Name. Sounds pretty cool. I would check it out personally. But anyhow, the umbrella would provide security by making sure that the bullion made its way to its destination safely. And so you have Santee, you know, kind of working at the behest of people like Edward Lansdale, who we will get more deeply into, as well as some of the other people who are surrounding this whole umbrella operation. And as payment for gatekeeping these various accounts, Santee would be given a management fee. Um, so the Seagraves presume was most likely a small present percentage of the net assets behind a given account. And when we take into account just how large these accounts were, even a tiny management fee on the account would really reap great rewards. So say that Santee had a 1% fee for a billion dollar account, and some of these accounts were that big, that would be $10 million for Santee annually. Or even a fee as small as 0.1% would still yield an annual fee of a million dollars. And as the Seagraves point out, there were dozens and dozens of these accounts. So the CIA and all these people in the umbrellas getting greatly enriched and have, you know, a black budget for all their Cold War operations. So, you know, it's very helpful if you need to, I don't know, say pay someone off for doing some sort of political assassination or if you want to rig the election of a foreign country or something. You kind of need this. And Santee, even though he's, you know, taking a modest cut off of these accounts, that modest cut turns out to be quite the sum of money. So Santee is reaping in a lot of money as well doing this work as the cutout man for all these different accounts. So the mafia would become involved with the umbrella after the war when large amounts of gold were moved to banks in Italy, including the Vatican Bank. So <laughs> that's uh, certainly interesting. Uh, and this was all part of the CIA's attempt to keep communists from coming into power in Italy. And another example of the mafia being incorporated into the umbrella organization is the millionaire and ex-convict Wallace Groves, who was the owner of Grand Bahama Island. And he owned casinos there and in Nassau, uh, which were run by who else besides Mayor Lansky. And one of the Groves' partners in the ownership of the island was the Wall Street firm Allen & Co., which was owned by Charlie and Herbert Allen, and they also controlled Paramount Pictures at the time. And so the Allens had a large stake in Benguet Mines in the Philippines. So I will read from Gold Warriors. In a complex deal, Groves and the Allens swapped a piece of Grand Bahama to Marcos in return for nearly complete control of Benguet. This allowed the umbrella to move war gold out of the Philippines, masquerading as gold from Benguet mines. Once the gold reached certain banks in Nassau, it served as part of an elaborate money laundering scheme that included washing drug profits through the groves, casinos, and then converting them into gold bars. And Santee knew all about the deal and wrote in 1973, during his month-long visit to the CIA and the Enterprise in Washington, that the Benguet Bahamas deal, a good grade major company swap, made instant millions for XYZ groups. So we have, you know, these drug profits being washed and then converted into casino money, which is then converted into gold bars. And so we can see this nexus between big business, the criminal underworld, CIA types in action. 
in this example, which is one of many examples provided in Gold Warriors of the kind of shady business that was going on all around this Golden Lily loot that Santee would help recover and turn into, you know, a CIA slush fund. And so the Seagraves say that while Santee remained the title holder of these accounts, that the assets or the derivatives behind them were used by various governments through special arrangements arrangements with the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, Swiss banks. So we have uh, an interesting relationship going on here, to say the least. But by the early 70s, the accounts linked to Santi and possibly even owned by him were estimated to be well over $50 billion. I'll say that again, to be worth well over $50 billion. So had these accounts all belonged to him personally, he would have been one of the wealthiest men on the planet at the time, but he would never receive his write-up in Forbes or anything like that. In fact, Santee would only be known to a small clique of intelligence agency spooks and bankers, and he would never be known outside of the Philippines or outside of this small clique of people. And the Seagraves point out that without access to CIA and Treasury Department documents and the internal documents of the numerous banks that Santee had accounts with, it really is impossible to figure out exactly how Santee was positioned as the title holder of all these different accounts. So again, I'll read a brief little bit from Gold Warriors. What happened inside the Philippines is easier to grasp. Some of Santee's money helped get Ferdinand Marcos elected president. Marcos spent 20 years grooming himself for the post and finally succeeded in 1965. Along the way, as we were counted in the Marcos dynasty, another book by the Seagraves, he did favors for the CIA and the Pentagon during the expansion of the Indochina War. When Marcos got the presidential nomination, all members of his campaign team previously had worked for Lansdale. Marcos was pushed into the palace as a new Magsaysa, or America's boy. Marcos convinced the White House that he would help sell the Vietnam War to other Southeast Asian leaders by funneling bribes from Santee's accounts at banks in Hong Kong, Tokyo, Taipei, Singapore, and Sydney. These bribes were not in cash, which could be frittered away overnight, but in the form of derivatives, including gold bearer certificates, entitling the holder to interest on a large account. So long as the recipient behaved, he could continue to draw the interest. If he went sour, the certificate could be declared counterfeit. So we would have Marcos support the war in Vietnam, and in return, Washington would make sure to keep him in his place in Malacanang Palace. And Marcos and Washington would have a close relationship with one another, that is until the Reagan administration when he would fall out of favor with President Reagan. So Marcos would receive a lot of negative press during his first four-year term, and he wasn't liked very well by the people of the Philippines. Uh, one example of why he wasn't particularly liked by people in the Philippines who were struggling to make ends meet was that his wife Imelda and her daughter would go to New York and spend $3.3 million in the course of one weekend shopping. So while the people in the Philippines are struggling, the Marcos family is just living it up. And a lot of that is due to all of this golden lily loop. But this wouldn't stop Marcos from receiving another four-year term in 1969, which we can attribute this to him stuffing the ballot boxes. <laughs> so it's not like he was you know, voted in in a proper election. But Marcus would persuade Santee to make him the deputy director of the Umbrella, where he would be further enriched while the people of the Philippines continued to struggle. And it was during this time that Santee would start to turn to drinking to kind of help soothe his mind. So Gold Warrior says, He was losing control to Marcos, which depressed him. What tipped the scale in favor of Marcos was the fickle nature of new people rising to the top of the CIA hierarchy. Men who did not share wartime experiences in the OSS, memories of the good old days as China cowboys, or of the formative years of the post-war CIA when everybody was a cold warrior engaged in dirty tricks. The old gar knew Santee firsthand and valued him. So, many of Santee's accounts had been dormant for years, and Marcos would 
let's just say heavily pressured Santi to transfer those accounts over to him. So Santi was familiar with what happened to people who did not give in to Marcos's wishes. They often found themselves in the back in the black room of Malacanang Palace, or they would just end up dead on the roadside with their eyeballs plucked from their skulls hanging on their stalks, which the Seagraves say was a signature of General Ver, or Ver, who we just heard about when it came to the grenade that was thrown, the two grenades that was thrown into the crowd at the opposition rally uh, that Roger was at, having to keep all these name straight in my head which can be hard at times but to avoid this kind of fate to keep his eyes safely placed inside his head santi would give in to marcos when needed but he would also begin to take steps to ensure his safety and as well as the safety of his personal accounts in order that they wouldn't be seized by presidential decree by marcos so santi would enlist the help of a woman named tarciana rodriguez a filipino woman who had made the treasure of who he made the treasurer of all his shells companies which made her responsible for billions in cash bullion gold certificates stocks and other assets and one story of santi comes from luz rambana who if i remember right i believe that she is one of his mistresses at one point and she would say about santi that he one time deposited 43 million dollars in the manila branch of first national city bank now known as Citibank. but the transaction was unusual and that the cash was in very small denominations and it would actually take the bank six days to account for it all or to count it all but perhaps Santi had been hiding large amounts of this cash in his home and wall safes and well wall safes in various homes I should say all over the Philippines you know in order to keep it safe from Marcos and Santi would also dress down often wearing clothing with patches in it in order to disguise his wealth from Filipino street toughs who would see him come and go from places like his year-round suite that he held at the Hilton which just so happened to be right across the street from the CIA station in the Magsaysay building. And so, once again, Gold Warriors says, He did this none too soon. On February 27, 1973, Santi was brought to Malacanang Palace, where, in the president's private office, Marcus made him sign a typewritten will and testament. This document says Santi had been using various names for personal reasons, security and preservation of my properties, real personal, cash money, and different currencies, treasures, and other forms of bank deposits. It goes on to say, I had acquired various properties presently on deposit in Manila, Hong Kong, California, Switzerland, New York, Argentina, Singapore, Taiwan, Germany, Australia, and various Asian countries. This will then named... My wife, Julieta Huerto, as my successor of all my properties as above mentioned, with full power and authority that upon my death may appoint other persons to act as my administrator subject to the approval of the court on probate. This will was reluctantly signed by Santi and witnessed by his business partner, Jose T. Velasquez, and two Marcos flunkies, Gil de Guzman and Presidential Secretary Victor G. Natuda. Although technically it made Julieta Huerto his sole legal heir, on his death Marcos easily could oblige her to appoint him administrator of the estate so he could gain control of all of Santi's accounts. A few months later, in March 1973, Santi had another attack of nerves and moved $500 million from Manila to the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, Central Branch in Hong Kong. This sum, plus the $800 million transferred to Citibank New York, meant he had now moved $1.3 billion of cash out of Manila. So we have Santi moving all of this cash outside the Philippines, all of this money outside of the Philippines, and you can see that he's starting to feel the pressure of Marcos on him and that he's getting scared about the future of these accounts because, you know, Marcos wants all these accounts for himself. So soon after transferring this money, Santi would speak too loudly about his fears after having a few too many drinks, and he would be arrested for, and this is a quote, rumor-mongering, so basically just saying anything behind Marcos's back that Marcos doesn't like, 
and he would tell Tarsiana to go to the first National City Bank in Manila and retrieve the money and jewelry from the safe deposit boxes there and to deliver a letter to the vice president of the bank. But she would not end up doing this. And when she was arrived, she was actually told that the vice president was out of the country and to find another time to come back. So... Uh, when Santi got out after his arrest, you know, his troubles weren't over. Things were changing in the intelligence circles he was working on behalf of. And perhaps in too long of a passage I'm about to read from the Sea Graves, um, we will kind of get an idea of how things are changing in these intelligence circles. And this is a little bit of a long passage, but I think that it is a very good and it gives us an idea of how things were changing in these intelligence circles that we will uh, greatly appreciate as we go forward in our story. So, over the years, Santi had been protected by the CIA and by General Lansdale in particular. But in 1973, the agency was in turmoil. A number of senior people were sacked or resigned in disgust rather than be posted to remote backwaters. These men were now intent upon setting up their own private covert organization, or Shadow CIA. Where the CIA was often called the company, the new Shadow CIA would be called the Enterprise. In the midst of this turmoil, Santee was invited to Washington as a private guest of the disaffected Old Guard, including Lansdell, Hellowell, Klein, and others. For over a month, they regaled him with stories about OSS days about the fight against Mao and the escape to Taiwan, how they turned Claire Chenault's civil air transport into Air America, and briefed Santee on CIA's other black ops in Latin America, Africa, and behind the Iron Curtain. Each night he went back to the Mayflower Hotel and sat down with a tumbler and a bottle of scotch to make notes. His sloppy handwriting and occasional mistakes in dates and spellings were attributed by Tarsiana to the whiskey. In the notes, Santee describes in striking detail many of the CIA's covert operations that did not become known to the American public until years later. How the CIA went about setting up proprietaries like his own DMP enterprises. How many of these companies were airlines and transport services, arms suppliers, or private mercenary forces to support secret wars like the one in Angola. People, he said, were paid pensions to maintain silence. He commented on the moral dilemma posed by many of the agency's operations. While ethics of transaction are questionable, conflicts of interest laws do not apply to CIA. Expenditures made without regard to provisions of laws, bankrolling agents living up their cover. He seemed nervous that Langley headquarters sometimes only has the vaguest notions of what, was, of what certain proprietaries are up to. Near the end of his notes, Santee wrote that the CIA and the Nixon administration were convinced that Asia as a whole was a mess, and this justified long-term interference by the United States, and it strongly implied continued open American intervention in internal affairs of the Third World Asian cartel members. What the old guard wanted from Santee, now that they were setting up their own private CIA and private military forces, was access to some of the black bullion accounts that Washington had lost track of. They knew Santee also had a number of very large personal accounts that were dormant, and they wanted him to make these available. So, on the 1st of August in 1974, Santee would make Tarsiana the national treasurer of DMP Enterprises, and gave her the custody of and the responsibility for all the funds, securities, and bonds of the corporation. Santee was having a moral crisis, and as a result, he was drinking more and more, which, as can happen, was taking a toll on his liver. So, despite having tortured Kojima, Santee really is kind of a interesting character and somewhere deep down inside of him he had a heart he was certainly a man who had made his fair share of mistakes you know he had multiple mistresses he had tortured kojima but we also have to remember with the torturing of yamashita's driver that this was in the context of the rape of manila just happening so you have the imperial japanese coming and you know beheading people gutting people in the streets raping women 
It was certainly a horrible sight to behold. And Santi, as a Filipino man, I'm sure took a lot of that to heart and was none too pleased with the Imperial Japanese. So torturing people's never good, but we do have to put it in its proper context. And Santi, with all of his faults, he did have a moral crisis, a crisis of conscience, and he had, you know, at this point helped recover much of the Golden Lily loot and had come into great wealth as a result of being the holder of these accounts for CIA guys like Lansdale. But he also saw the ruthlessness of Marcos as a result of getting all this Golden Lily loot. Golden Lily loot. Say that five times fast. Um, you know, and he would see that Marcos was a despot who was largely in power as a result of all this treasure that he had helped recover. And he had helped put Marcos in office and Marcos would, you know, end up making martial law a reality in the Philippines. And he would punish the opposition. He would do the false flag where he would blame communists for throwing the grenades in there when it was his presidential security command that was the one who did it. So he saw up front just how awful the what happened as a result of this loot was. And he would also, you know, come into contact with this circle of CIA guys in Washington. You can call them the Enterprise, like the Seagraves do. You know, men who would brag about carrying out political assassinations and other atrocities in order to fight the Cold War. The Seagraves described them as men who World War II never ended for. And as the Seagraves would also put it, for the first time, Santi began thinking of himself as a paymaster for scoundrels and death squads, and it depressed him. And soon after all of this would happen, his health would begin to fail, and he would be taken to a hospital where he would instruct Tarsiana on what to do. So this is once again from Gold Warriors. In the hospital on September 21st, he wrote out in a long hand a new four-page will. I'm pressed for time, so no matter how incoherent this piece of note may seem, please take it in the light it is given. He would go on to make references to the terms of his Malacanang Palace will, which he was forced by Marcos to sign. In the new will, he mentions a number of live bank accounts at HSBC's Hong Kong main branch and others at Citibank Manila. He names 14 people as beneficiaries of sums from several bank accounts. And so, anyways, he would go on to talk about the di distribution of, you know, large amounts of money, like $50 million from the account in the Citibank branch in the Philippines, another $10 million in pesos, and the beneficiaries of this account would include his sons by his first marriage, Peter and Roy Diaz, and here he called them by their Spanish names, Pedro and Rolando. But anyways, he's just instructing Tarsiana on what to do with all of this money. So after spending close to a couple of weeks in the hospital, his daughter would take him home where he could pass somewhere other than in the cold, sterile environment of a hospital. And a few days later, he would do just that. The cause of his death was, take a guess, drumroll, cirrhosis of the liver. Um, so the alcohol that would be the only thing to help alleviate his conscience from what he knew was taking place ended up being the thing that would kill him in the end. So as many people who come into contact with the Golden Lily loot, he is another that seems to meet a pretty sad end. So somehow after his death, Edward Lansdale interestingly enough, would find a way to have all of Santee's gold that was in Citibank Manila transferred to Citibank New York. And your guess is just as good as mine as to how he had this happen. I mean, the Seagraves kind of put out that, you know, to their knowledge, the best way to do this would be if he could somehow have contrived a way to have a uh, power of attorney over Santee um, in name somehow. But how he would have gone about doing it, I don't know. But as the Seagraves worded, basically he waved his magic wand, which I guess you can do when you're a CIA guy like Lansdale. 
But this wasn't the only account which Lansdale would somehow manage to wave the magic wand with. There would be numerous other large accounts that he would do this with. And one of these accounts that had belonged to Santee was one with UBS Geneva, which contained 20,000 metric tons of gold. And Santee was listed as the holder. But guess what? After Santee's death, somehow it would change to list Lansdale as the holder of record. So very interesting. We have Lansdale who had kind of always been a bit of a handler for Santee and all these accounts are now being put in his name and he's the holder of record now. And how he goes about doing this, who knows. But Marcos, if he was thinking that he was going to get greater control over these accounts with the death of Santee, he would be SOL because most of these accounts would end up in the hands of the guys in Washington, the American Intelligence Circle, the Enterprise, if you will. And the Enterprise, that secret and private CIA mentioned by the Seagraves earlier, had backers in the John Birch Society and the World Anti-Communist League, and they would assume more control over all of this golden lily loot as time went on. So now the Cold Warriors, as it is, have a black budget of incomprehensible amounts to wage their battle against communism worldwide. So you'll just have to tune in next time to learn more about Edward Lansdale, the Enterprise, and what all would come out of this black budget. We're going to talk about the John Birch Society and the World Anti-Communist League aspect of it. We're going to get deeper into Edward Lansdale. And we're just going to talk about all the shady business that happens as a result of the Enterprise now having this black budget. But anyhow, that was today's episode of Things Observed. Hope you dug it. I dug getting to talk with all you guys, you cool cats, you groovy guys and gals. Guys and gals. People of all kinds are welcome to listen to Things Observed. If you enjoyed this, well, leave a review on Spotify or Apple. Say that you enjoyed it. If you didn't enjoy it, you can DM me at ThingObserver on Twitter, and you can tell me how silly and dumb you think I am, and how I need to do better, and how you love to hate listen to this podcast, just so you can hear how stupid I am. But... If you like it, you can also DM me. You can DM me anything you want, and I will talk to you. My DMs are open, and I'm always happy to hear from you guys. Um, It's always fun to see what people have to say. And, yeah, we're just going to continue next week with the story of Gold Warriors, you know, what the Seagraves write in that book. And we'll jump into some stuff outside of that as well and talk about all the juicy connections and tidbits of inter information surrounding this story but anyways once again hope you guys enjoyed this podcast stay tuned even if you're getting bored with this series we have good stuff coming in the future since you guys are listening to the second part i'll let you in on on some juicy little secrets we're going to be talking about like abiotic oil theory in the future abiotic i should say oil theory and we're going to talk about just all kinds of juicy stuff. I think that we're going to get into some, you know, operation paperclip type stuff. We're going to get into scorzening soon. You guys know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, you're going to have fun listening to it in the future. We have all kinds of groovy stuff coming on down the pipeline. So anyways, I think I'm about to step outside enjoying the rainfall, pick my blade up and go back to cutting through the through the bushes, try to find me some of that gold for myself. So wish me luck. Anyhow, my name's Luke Marshall. This was Things Observed, and I'll talk to all of y'all soon. Go back to those gold sounds and keep my advent to yourself because it's nothing. I don't like Is it a crisis or a boring change When it's central, so essential It has a nice ring when you laugh At the low life opinion
I'm not afraid.